What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 85 of the Frog Snacks podcast. You're listening to me, Frog. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my one and only uh, podcasting bro, Snacks. What's going on? What's up? What's up? Uh, this is a very special episode for us. A, I just introduced it. Uh, <laughs> and B, we're going to... Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and B, we're going to be kicking off uh, something that's long overdue. In 85 episodes of Frog Snacks, we have really not touched on one of the titans of the gaming industry. Uh, and that titan is none other than Sega. Sega. We really should have the sound queued up for that, but uh, that, was, that was a good... That was it, good anyway. Yeah, and that is definitely something I want to bring up too because that, that's a cool story in and of itself. But continue. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, so we're starting today. We're kicking off a month of Sega talk. Um, we'll leave what the other weeks will bring. Uh, we'll leave some suspense for that. But today, we're going to delve right in to the book Console Wars by Mr. Blake Harris, mm-hmm. uh, which is an excellent, excellent, excellent read that I highly recommend to anybody who has even a passing interest in games. Um, and I'd also recommend it to anybody who has a good, healthy interest in business because this book is all about ultimately uh, corporate maneuvering, a little bit of backstabbing and the humans involved in all of the above. Um, yes. So let's kick it off. Console Wars. Uh, kicking into snacks, what was... We're going to start at the beginning of the story. So, of course, the story follows uh, the legendary Tom Kalinske, yes. who was brought on board Sega in, what was that, 1990? Uh, I want to say 1990. The, the story goes is that he was um, interrupted in the middle of a... Um, uh, vacation, a, a vacation right? right he was he was he was on a family vacation in Hawaii and mm-hmm. uh you, you know Hawaii being this uh you know pretty like famous like uh midway point uh between Japan and the United States both figuratively geographically and culturally mm-hmm. and uh he's he is approached by the uh then president of Sega of Japan and uh, Mr. It, Nakayama. Mr. Na- Mr. Nakayama, who is one of the most perplexing characters in the whole book. Yes. Um, so uh, Tom Kalinske uh, is offered the job to be uh, not president of uh, Sega of America, right? President of Sega of America? Well, yeah, he was he was offered to lead Sega of America. Lead just to lead, take over from Michael Katz. Right to lead Sega of America. Uh, Katz being the, uh, the previous, uh, leader of Sega of America, the, the guy that started the, uh, the, the infamous, um, motto back in the late eighties, uh, Sega does what Nintendo don't. Um, he was the one that got replaced. Uh, he gets replaced by Tom Kalinske, who formerly of Mattel, who did some really interesting things with, the uh, the Barbie franchise, the Ken franchise, the, um, the, the He-Man character. That was all him. So, now pause right there because yeah. this is the first mind blower in the book okay. for me. The fact that already I'm finding out that Tom Kalinske, who, you know, go, this is one of those stories where you're reading the story but you know how it ends. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, it really only takes place from 1990 to 1994. That's it. Well, five. Five, yeah. Yeah. 
pretty much. Um, but it's it's a yeah. it's a short period of time, and you know what happens or what is going to happen the whole time. Right. So because of that, you already know going into this that Tom Clancy is a, a big deal. Uh, but it was a mind blower to find out this dude was responsible for Flintstones chewable tablets. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like. Tom Kalinske did so much stuff. There are so many names that were introduced in the book that I was kind of unfamiliar with, but like maybe had heard of and didn't right. realize didn't realize that they were responsible for so much beyond right. the scope of video games. Right, right, right. And uh, but Tom Kalinske easily eclipses pretty much everybody mentioned in the book mm-hmm. outside from the legends like Miyamoto. Yeah, but. Uh, and even he was a bit player in, in this story. Uh, but yeah, so that was the first mind blower that going into all this, he already had a stacked deck of achievements. Definitely. So he thinks about it. He takes the job, right? Well, that was the short version. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually the funny, one of my favorite fun moments in the book was of course, what snacks was skipped is that, uh, Nakayama took Tom to Japan and tour, had him tour Sega's labs and see all the, like, kooky, crazy stuff that they were coming up with. And he goes back, and when he finally does accept the job, then Michael Katz, as he's going out, is like, oh, God, he's, so did he, t- <laughs> did he take you to the labs or to the cafe? And the answer, you know, as a reader, is they both. Yeah. <laughs> so I was cracking up at that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's a lot of... Um like courting that goes on in this book between between Sega and a lot of the prospective employees and even between even with Nintendo and some of their prospective employees so it's uh and even Sega with some of Nintendo's employees or former employees so it's uh it's it's very interesting it's like this weird so it, the, the gist of the book really in case you guys at this point don't know what we're talking about it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really just like a very specific part of gaming history that is so multi-layered and it's, it's like reading a spy novel mixed with a, a business book and, uh, and like a biography of multiple people all at the same time. It's, I cannot believe that yeah. the, that the, that the contents of this book only had to do with video games between 1990 and 1995. It was yeah. it was incredible. It was, it was such a formative such formative years for today's video game culture. And the events described yeah. in this book literally transformed the entire industry. Yeah, it really did. So he takes the job, right? And from there on, his job from uh, essentially 1990 until you know 1993 really is. Uh, a, a lot of it is marketing because at this point the Sega Genesis is out. Yep. The Sega Genesis is already out. The Nintendo Entertainment System is already out, and what they are, tr- what what Tom Kalinske's job boils down to, is how do you take a take essentially take Nintendo down? At this point, Nintendo. Um, is video games is Nintendo is video games the 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 quick and dirty history of video games before uh, 1989 essentially before mm-hmm. or before the release of the NES I should say mm-hmm. is 
that it was this uh, foreign oddity, and then you had the the golden age of arcades, and then there was a huge crash, which a lot of people who follow video games and know things about video games know about. Uh, yep. In in 1983, 1984-ish, uh, there was this huge crash. The, the, market, the market became saturated. There was uh, very little quality assurance, and uh, so much was being released so quickly, and so much of it was so... Uh, poorly designed and poorly tested and just bad in general that uh, the bubble burst and and nobody was interested in video games at least in the United States you know there was there was still some lingering interest in Japan but Nintendo essentially single-handedly revitalized the industry and with as the NES. with the NES as a result Nintendo had a damn near a monopoly uh, there were th- the the other mentionable players during this era from we'll say 1987 to 1990 right. contributed to a total of maybe 10% of the global market of video games and Nintendo was literally everything else so that's correct so you know Atari still existed EA was fledgling like still working on like PC software you had a couple of like European cats doing some stuff in you yeah. know and they come up later, and then you had Sega. But but to combined, they barely put a dent in Nintendo's market share. So Tom Kalinske is uh, tasked with the near impossible uh, feat, you know, the gargantuan feat, feet. the gargantuan feat of of essentially taking one big step forward. If you can just increase the market share, you've done your job. So this That's is what I'll say right there. Again. Yeah. Because yeah. I want to say, because uh, another thing about this book is that it actually also gives you a quite extensive history of Nintendo as well. Oh yeah. Uh, because obviously you have to know about the 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 juggernaut that they were going up against. Uh, and just a quick tidbit: uh, the mind blower for me is, did you catch that Nintendo of America used to be headquartered in New York? Yeah, I did. That was wild. And of course, it makes sense. A lot of companies are headquartered in New York as being the one of the major business centers in the United States. But as we found out, uh, given that when uh, NOA was first established, they were primarily in hard in arcade business. Mm-hmm. So, and and Nintendo Japan was not letting their machines be uh, manufactured in the United States. So everything had to be imported. Now, when you're in New York, the cost was so ridiculous uh, for getting these things across the country so you could do everything else that you needed to do with related to distribution. Uh, eventually, they're like, well, screw it. We're just going to have to move all the way over to the West Coast, which is where they remained ever since. Uh, that alone, I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Nintendo later pretty much, and still is to this day, like, fairly synonymous with uh, the Seattle metropolitan area and Washington state in general, um, you know, due to some, you know, uh, business moves and just kind of like having existed in the area for such a long time. Obviously it's a Japanese, it's a Japanese company. It's always going to be associated with Japan, but in the United States, it's always kind of been considered a, a Seattle company. So even though, you know, Frog and I know a ton about New York and a ton about Nintendo, neither one of us had any idea that they uh, had anything other than the, the other than the Nintendo World Store in New York, but right. they used to be headquartered there. So, uh, so he, he so so this is his task, right? This is the task at hand: um, market the Genesis, which Sega truly believed was superior 
to the NES and market it, you know, p- prove it somehow through marketing. Um, Tom Kalinske had worked magic before at, at Mattel, so they figured he was the man for the job. So that's that's a big part of the book, really, is, is all of the different ad campaigns, all of the different, um, you know, character creation, uh, everything. And so... There's a lot of bomb throwing from Sega. Yeah. Because they were the market underdogs, to put it nicely. So oh, they yeah. had to do all sorts of stuff to be able to put cracks in the Nintendo empire. Uh, let's talk about another thing that I thought was super interesting throughout all this, that this is the era where the, the nastiest parts of Nintendo's reputation uh were established, right? Right. So, so this is a huge part of the book too, and I, I kind of know what you're going to touch on here. But uh, general, just just general business practices that are accepted in uh, in the East and West, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so Nintendo kind of got themselves in a little bit of hot water in the West because. Some of the things that they were doing in Japan that was perfectly fine weren't really that okay in the United States, um, and and this is you know this is this is really just sort of the end of or the, I would say like the beginning of the end of Japan being considered like this wild foreign entity. So there's right. still a lot of you know friction, really cultural friction and xenophobia, frankly. Oh, a- absolutely, and and that gets brought up as well. But you know you look at. Uh, this this market share and the way the way that Nintendo uh, controlled quality in their company to an extent that was deemed tyrannical in the West, yeah. Where you know they they kept uh, they 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 essentially um, you know blocked the quote unquote free market from you know from growing in in the West under the uh, Nintendo brand because they, they had seen the video game crash and they, they, they assumed and, you know, at at least somewhat rightfully so for the first couple of years that the only way to prevent it from crashing again was to have, uh, you know, straight up their own quality control and, and, you know, have it be like of a straight up despotic quality. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, so if you were a public, third-party publisher, I think the limit was, what, five games per year? It was five games per year. Nintendo had to supply you with the cartridges, which they sold to you, and yep. they also demanded a, uh, a ridiculous um, royalty as well for all games sold. So you were essentially paying Nintendo to uh, make your games, to make games on Nintendo consoles, which really was the only console out there. Because again, yep. they had ninety percent of the market share worldwide, right? And so your your only your only option really was to was to make your game for a Nintendo system. If you wanted to make your game for a Nintendo system, you had to buy all the cartridges from Nintendo. You had to pay them the royalties, and you were limited to how many how many games you could make. So it was like, I mean, it was like some like Wizard of Oz shit. Like you would go into the thing, yeah. and there'd be like this giant smoking head, and like you couldn't. <laughs> do anything like you had to like beg and plead them for anything and and there were several instances where uh you know up and up until they were kind of up against the ropes but you know there were several instances of nintendo 
uh, being asked quite reasonably, you know, by by bigger developers, like, hey, can we make more than five games? And the answer is always, up until always. the very end, a resounding no. So there are some there are some parts, and this is not just uh, Nintendo of Japan, but Sega of Japan especially, really, where as a Western ear and a Western reader, you're looking at these kinds of things and you're like, even though I understand the historical context, this seems ridiculous and strange. And that's a big part of the book is, is the, is the general cultural disconnect between East and West, but especially in the theater of business. But see, to be fair, this is less a Japan thing and more a Nintendo thing. Uh, Nintendo, this is part of what, part of what we love about the company, to be honest, right? Yeah. Is that they very much do things, they do things their own way come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, people think it's ridiculous today, but it, this is nothing compared to the level of we're doing it this way, fuck you, that they were doing back in late 80s and throughout most of the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, they just said... We believe in quality, like hardcore. Yeah. Quality is our religion at Nintendo. Mm-hmm. And so we are not letting the rest of you bastards do anything that's going to mess it up. Screw all of you. And you're going to come here because we're going to make you money anyway. Uh, and, and as you said, until Sega started to make aggressive moves to undo this relationship, uh, it worked. Side note, uh, one of the things they mention in the book is uh, the company Tengen, who said, you know what, fuck Nintendo. We're going to reverse engineer their cartridge technology, and we're going to make our own shit, our own bootleg cartridges, and we're going to release as many games as we want, and they're going to have to, you know, eat it. Uh, Of course, this does not end well for Tengen. Uh, We needn't get into the whole story here, actually. I'll point people to Retronauts, which is an awesome podcast about retro video games. A bunch of people from US Gamer, uh, who formerly, of course, worked at 1UP, do it. Mm-hmm. They have a great episode about the entire Tengen saga. And, of course, you can read about it in Console Wars. But that's just an example to show you of how desperate some people got to stick it to Nintendo because of the, the level of tyrannical control exercised by them. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's, uh, there were definitely parts of the book where I was like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like this, this wouldn't be like, if this were an American, if this were an American company, this would be on the news. Like if this were, if this were a company that, uh, that dealt with like people's livelihoods, for example, like there would be, there would be a multitude of lawsuits. Well, you know, the other thing is that, keep in mind, this is early era video games, right? Oh, yeah. It's the Wild West. It's the Wild West, and the general American public could not give less of a shit about gaming aside from it's that thing that we bought for little Johnny to do, so shut up. Yeah. So, yeah, nobody was going to take it seriously. And, in fact, that's another theme of the book, right? Because part of the monumental achievements by uh, Tom Kalinske is helping to legitimize, uh, helping to, he, he set the foundation, he and his team set the foundation 
for getting games to be considered an adult activity. Yeah, and a lot of that, a lot of that had to do with you know one of my favorite stories in the in the book was uh, you know he's trying to get the games uh, he's trying to get the games and the consoles on shelves because yeah. w- one of the, one of my favorite things and I actually didn't know this because of you know the the where like I did not know this and this this was one of the coolest fun facts I thought uh, about general video game history regardless of you know uh, it being tied to a specific company <coughs> was mm-hmm. back in the day there were just kind of like general uh, toy stores and electronic stores that carried games kind of like how it is today but the way that it worked was uh, you know not all of these stores carried all of the games and you there were there were there was no such thing as a as a release date like you kind of would just get the game if you got it based on shipping times and like and uh, like market research right uh, right right yeah that was a mind blower for me too I was a world without release dates? It was a world without release dates. You would literally call your local electronics store and ask them if they got in the game yet. And yep. they would not know until, like, the day they got the shipment if they had it or were going to get it. Like, that, it, to me, is incredible. Like, they would place an order and might not get what they asked for, depending on how big they were and what the deal was. And there was no release date. So, I mean, if they said, like fall 1990 they meant fall 1990 they didn't mean yeah, as some random part in yeah fall they didn't mean like a more specific date to be named later right they meant we're aiming for the fall and you had to like call every day i guess like in the fall so the one of the things one of the things tom kalinsky tries to do is to get sega products sold at walmart Yes, and, I was, was going to say we have to talk about this. And that's, this is one of the craziest parts of the book. This is one of the craziest parts of the book, right? So, so Walmart has a deal with Nintendo, obviously, yep. and you know they're selling all Nintendo stuff. They're there, and and Tom Kalinsky goes, you know, listen, we've got the superior product here uh, for the Christmas season. We really want uh, you to carry Sega stuff. We're, we're, I want to pause you real fast right there too, yeah. because we should set this up by saying that. Just as Nintendo exercised tyrannical control over their developer relationships, they also had the same uh, level of ironclad grip over their retailer partners. Yes, sir. Which is even more mind-blowing, by the way. Yeah, and that, like, I mean, you go to a CVS and you go to, like, the toothpaste aisle and there's literally... There are there are at least a dozen brands of toothpaste I've never even heard of. Imagine going to a CVS, like a big like national chain, and only seeing Crest toothpaste, and they're not allowed to carry another type of toothpaste. Like that was that sounds so weird, right? But that's how it was. Yeah, so, and that's because because Nintendo owned the video game market. See, kids, this is why monopolies are bad. Yeah, this is this is like a very non ambiguous. Illegal. Case study Ill- in, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a case study in, in monopolization and the dangers of it and, you know, the general American attitudes towards it, which don't necessarily exist in Japan. Right. And that's – and because nobody cared about video games or took them seriously, this kind of thing wasn't really pursued until it got bigger. Exactly. So yeah. just a real quick setup, I was going to say that uh, – Basically, Nintendo used its status as the market hegemon. 
uh, to force retailers to obey their every command. So for one thing, they set the, uh, the distribution orders. So if Target said, we need a million copies of Mario Brothers 3, well, Nintendo said, well, you might get, you might get 500,000 if we feel like it. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing was an iron, was an like an iron bear hug. It wasn't an iron grip. It was an iron bear. It was hug. An iron bear. Yeah, it was an iron bear hug. And yeah. Target protested. Well, we'll pull your product, and then you're going to lose millions of dollars because all these thirsty kids looking for Nintendo products aren't going to have them in your store. What then? So Target eventually has to shut up and do what they say. And it's it's stunning, and it even works as you're about to get into on Walmart. Walmart. Which, if you guys know anything about how they operate, uh, they are the bully of bullies when it comes to um, market power, and, and that's what they—that's what they've been roundly criticized for over the last two decades. Right. Is that they—they they roll up with these various um, manufacturers and they say you're going to sell it to us for this price. Yeah, they roll up in an Escalade with tinted windows. Yes, they- <laughs> pretty much. They say, hey, random manufacturer of your little, you know, uh, board game or whatever. You're going to sell this to us for this price. But what if we want to sell it to you for a higher price? You're going to sell it to us for this price. And that's the end of the discussion. Right. So Tom Kalinske goes all the way to the headquarters, right? In Bentonville, uh, Arkansas. In Bentonville, Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. A town... Nobody would ever know of, ever, unless Walmart <laughs> wasn't headquartered there. Yes. And he, and he talks, and he talks to them and he says, and he says, listen, please, I, I, I really think that this is a good idea. Carry some of our units. I, I guarantee they'll sell out. They hem, they haw, they eventually say no. Because they didn't want to piss off Nintendo. Right. Nintendo's like the ultimate, like, abusive boyfriend. Like, like they're, they're like afraid, right? <laughs> like all of Nintendo's girlfriends are like afraid, right? Of Nintendo. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so weird. Like the way but that Tommy finds out. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's like, it, it, it's really is, it, it really is like, like list, like watching an episode of Mori. Like you can't believe that these, that these giant companies are acting the way they act around Nintendo. Like right. they're legitimately afraid of Nintendo. So so they say no. So what does uh, what, what does Sega do? Right, Sega at this point under under the helm of Tom Kalinske, Sega is essentially a uh, like a, a lab for stunts, right? And they, a band of marauders. If you really want to think about they're, that, right? they're really a bunch of people who act like they have absolutely nothing to lose. Even though at this point. You know, end of 1991, end of 1992, Sega is gaining a lot of ground, like a real lot of ground on Nintendo, thanks to some very smart ad campaigns and, you know, kind of unprecedented success for a, a, a secondary market uh, electronic item in the in the West. And and it, but they're still acting like they have nothing to lose, like pretty much the whole time. Right. And it really yes. and it, it really is, you know, uh, it, it really is, is the reason for their meteoric rise. And so, 
so what they what they do is they concoct this this ridiculous idea, and I was reading it the whole time, and I was like, I was like, they're not going to do it. This is like a funny anecdote, like, hey, we thought of this, <laughs> we thought of doing this back in 1991, but they actually they actually did it. The idea was that they were going to build like their own Sega Superstore across the street. From, from Walmart headquarters. From Walmart headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. I was like, I was like, first off, who is going to Bentonville, Arkansas? <laughs> there is a Walmart in your town. You do yep. not. You have zero reason to go to Bentonville, <laughs> Arkansas. You you are already, it's already crossed off your list. Like, right. if 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 Bentonville, Arkansas was the home of the one and only Walmart, maybe if you were on a road trip, maybe you would pull over. Right. But there is already a Walmart in your town. You do not need to go to Bentonville. There is no reason. And they decided, like, we're going we're gonna to make a Sega City. We're going to turn Bentonville, Arkansas into, uh, Sega-land. into Segaland. And, and by God, they did it. They, they put up billboards all over town. They put up – they, they, they got a storefront, right? They got a, a temporary storefront and they stocked it with Sega products. They had all these – uh, they had all these, um, you know, free samples, I guess. And which is another really interesting thing is that Sega did a lot of, of a lot of their, um, market, uh, a lot of their marketing was, uh, the free sample model, right? Free sample and getting, and, and the Coke versus Pepsi model. Right. So the, the, the free sample model is, We'll have people play – and they kind of go hand in hand. But it's, it's kind of like we'll let people play our games for free and then they can see that not only do we have a ton of faith in our product but that our product is just as good if not likely better than the Nintendo product, right? In terms of graphical power and colors and all this other great stuff that people like to look at. So uh, so that and uh, oftentimes they would have – uh, a Nintendo product alongside it to compare it to, and they would they would you know record the results. You know what do you think? It, it was it was uh, a blind taste test, but it wasn't blind. They were like, I'm playing this thing that I've never heard of against the Nintendo, and this other thing I've never heard of actually is pretty good. No amount of uh, no amount of like familiarity bias can can ruin this for me. It, Sega actually has a really impressive product here, and kids. All across the nation said the same thing, and they went on, they went on multiple tours, multiple tours, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's wild because the whole time I was reading this passage, I was thinking of, I was thinking of Costco, because right. when I was a kid, there were always video like video game demo kiosks up in Costco. Mm. I remember playing Gex for the first time at a Ooh. at a Costco. Uh, demo booth and I and I this this was like a very early mid 90s thing and I really didn't see it much after that Gex yeah yeah yeah, Gex the original 2D one for the for the OG PlayStation which was uh, the worst of the three definitely but (laughs) but it was it was like you know it was definitely like right in the um you know, uh, like highly marketable, possible 
console mascot wheelhouse type era, right? So so Gex had a lot of potential, and Gex 2 and Gex 3D were both, like, pretty cool. But the first one was kind of butt. But anyway, I played it at, at, at a free kiosk in a Costco. So this was a thing that Sega really kind of started, right? And, and it was all – it wasn't to get their name out there. It was to – it was to like inadvertently talk shit about Nintendo and kind of like sully the name of Nintendo while also uh, getting uh, brand recognition out for Sega and proving that it had something to offer. Right. Now, just stop real quick. Let's not muddy the waters because you kind of combine two things. But the Bentonville, Arkansas, Sega land was, exp- as you said, nobody's going there. Nobody. So Sega took this massive gamble expressly for the purpose of saying to Walmart, carry us, carry us, carry us. They basically were going to be the little kid tugging on their parents' uh, pants until they bought them thing in the store. Come on, do it, 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 do it. All right, God, finally, died. Damn, I'll do it. And that's what happened. Eventually, Walmart came and said, would you please get these damn billboards out of here and we'll carry your product. Shut up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it was a gamble, but it worked brilliantly for them. Uh, separate from that was what you were talking about, the mall tours and all the aggressive Coke versus Pepsi style marketing. Yeah. Which went into high gear after the release of Sonic 1. Because once you had Sonic 1, which was a revolution at the time for being this really speedy, cool, kind of badass for 1991... Right. Uh, style game as opposed to the ant- it, it was the anti Mario. Yeah, it was, Sonic is literally conceived to be a Mario killer. Yeah, and to a certain degree, he succeeds, right? Yeah, because on the back of Sonic, among the various other crazy things that went on, um, they start Sega starts to climb, right? Uh, and they start doing all these aggressive ad campaigns. Uh, to try and eat Nintendo's lunch. And they bring on all these really interesting people. Uh, special shout-outs go to people like Al Nilsson uh, and Ellen Beth Van Buskirk and yeah. uh, EB- Diane Fornasier. EBVB. EBVB, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, Steve Race, who ends up becoming... As, don't you love when you find that character and then they become like this super important character later? Yeah. So Steve Race was, you know, um, one of the top marketing guys in Sega that Tom Kalinske brought on, and he was a big freaking deal there, but not nearly as much as he would become later, but we, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We'll get to him. Uh, another thing we should note in this period is that not only was there aggressive marketing, but they did all, all these crazy aggressive deals that I thought were so interesting, right? So, like, there was a big section of the book talking about how they went to Electronic Arts and basically got them to repackage Madden. Another thing, by the way, that would have been, like, an Armageddon-level shit show if that was pulled today. (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah. It really was the Wild West because they, they literally repackaged Madden with a different name. Yeah, and, and because Sega, if I recall correctly, they were selling Sega was going to sell that as Joe Montana football, mm-hmm. and EA basically was like, "All right, well, we'll give you Madden, repackage this with Joe Montana branding uh, for the, the soft relaunch of the Genesis." 
and then they were doing aggressive packings and everything. Sega was offering everybody super low royalties compared to Nintendo. Basically, they went around and said to everybody, hey, come put your games on our ish because whatever, uh, to live up to the name, right? What Sega does what Nintendo don't. Or in this case, Sega will let you do what Nintendo won't let you do. Right. And, um, and that so, was and that was a big part of kind of like getting the market share was getting developers on their side, and yeah, it was and kind that, of and Nintendo completely left themselves open. Right, and that was kind of I mean that was really like the easiest part because the the developers were so sick of Nintendo's bullshit. Like they were right. they were just like, hey, you got this thing? Like I can run my game on it. Uh, you'll let us do how many games a year? You'll let us do this, that? Okay, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so going forward a little bit, uh, you mentioned that in this Wild West time, there are no release dates, but Sega is responsible, uh, Al Nilsson and co. specifically, yep. are, are responsible for making gaming release dates a thing. This is this is my other like major mind blower in the book. Right? Like, I've, I... You you attribute Sega to like very little in 2016, but like they're responsible for a lot of what video games are today. Period, including like like stuff that we really just take for granted. Take for granted, today. exactly. Like, and one of them is release dates. Yeah, the release the release date. Like just having a release date. Period is a Sega invention. Yeah. And they just, did it. Just bask in that statement for a second, right? Right. The release date was invented by Sega. What? Like, okay. So they did it with, and they did it with actually a really brilliant campaign. They did it with Sega Two, the release of Sega Two. Well, Sonic they, Two. It was yeah, Sonic. Uh, that's what I said. Sonic Two. That's I what I said. Sega Two. Oh, did I say Sega Two? Freudian slip. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so they're gearing up for Sonic the Hedgehog Two. Sonic Two. Right. So they did it on uh, a on a. On a Tuesday, they did uh, what was it uh, like November second, something like that. Yeah, it was like early November in nineteen ninety two. Was yeah, yeah, early November nineteen ninety two. Uh, Sonic Tuesday, and they called it Sonic Tuesday with like a two, right? And that was it. Like November second, nineteen ninety two, wherever that was, was. But it's more than that too, right? Because the other part is that. They also invented the idea of having a release date that was a, an event because right, yeah. they came to New York, yep. they were at Toys R Us doing all these presentations, they had a video. Yeah. It was supposed to be simultaneous worldwide release, but a, a starting a theme that we're going to get to a lot more later in this conversation, uh, the disconnect between Sega of Japan and America. Sega of Japan was like, well, screw your release date, we're doing what we want. Uh, and the team in America basically to say is not worth the battle. Just let them go. But it still proved to be a huge success. Sonic Tuesday was a huge success. Uh, established release dates as a thing. And Sonic 2 went on to become a huge game. Yeah. And and that was it. And from then on, it was it was kind of like... Um, it was kind of like a given thing that, a, that there would be a, a release date. It was so much easier to market a game that way. And it just like in 2016, it's weird that that there was ever like a time where this thing had to be invented, but it was, and but it, it was. was, and it was, it was after that, it was just, it was just a given. So, uh, so so yeah, I, I think um, I think now we, so so I I, I guess in in 1993, 1994, I, I guess 1994, uh, Sega 
has uh, has gained almost equal market share with Nintendo, right? Which Pause is right there because right again, bask in that statement. Yeah, you took a company that was basically a non-entity, right, mm-hmm. in this marketplace against a juggernaut, uh, and you went from basically no market share to fifty percent. In 50 like percent. three and a half years. Fifty percent. Now, nineteen ninety four to beat them too. Right. So nineteen ninety four. We're gonna pause here for a couple for a couple of reasons. One, there are a lot of things, and again, we're talking to an audience that uh, plays video games, that knows things about video games, and knows what is going to happen. Right. Yep. Um, nineteen ninety four. Uh, is a, a very pivotal year in, in video games. Um, and we are going to try and, you know, traverse this part of the book without giving away a lot of, like, the nitty-gritty details because we, we want to encourage you to read this book uh, as somebody who plays video games and is interested in general video game and technological history. Um, we already cut a tremendous amount out of the book. <laughs> oh, I mean... The, Just the, getting to this the book, the book is like 600 pages, so... Yeah, it's a really in-depth story. So, so really, I mean, there's so much. Like, we we can't cover it by talking about it in an hour. This is just the, the first... Uh, this is just the first Frog's Next book club, really. But, yeah. Uh, but we, we do strongly encourage you to read the book, and, and there are a lot of, like... Uh, not, not twists, again, because you know what happens, but... Uh, but I, I think that we need to but talk. But they kind of are, actually. Well, they they are because you don't. You, I mean, it's again, it's stuff that is now taken for granted. Like we all know what happened to Sega. None of yes. us. No, we didn't really know how it happened, and some of that stuff is like you just want to yell at the book. You want to yeah. yell at the people in the book. Like, no, don't do that. It doesn't work. And like, <laughs> it's it's. But it's it, that's what makes it so captivating, you know. You can yes. you can read historical nonfiction, and even if it takes place in like the semi recent history, you're you're not dealing with decisions that so directly affect the things that you partake in every single day, right? Like even if you read a book that happened in I don't know, like the earlier twentieth century, you can. Be like, oh yeah, that's right. They do this, and uh, you know, um, and uh, the Soviet Union breaks up, right? And you're like, yeah, okay, fine, sure. Uh, or like they do this, and like it results in the the uh, <laughs> it, it results in like the uh, the, the Russo like the, the Russo wars with like uh, Japan, and you're like, that's fine. I, I know what happens, and like maybe that uh, in like a very butterfly effect way kind of affects. Some things that happened in the United States, maybe, but like it's so far fetched. But you know, in, in this book, it's so close to home because this is something that you know we spend a lot of time doing and, and care about because it's a hobby. And it happens really like in the earlier part of our lifetime. So it, yeah. you know, we're looking at this thing, and it's like this decision, sh- like this decision shaped my childhood. Like this didn't. Yeah. This this isn't happening in some faraway land with some dictator and and some princess and like some uh, empire and and some uh, you know uh, colony uprising like whatever like it, it, it's 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 world history but it hits 
so close to home. Like there are decisions that happen in this book and I remember it. And not only do I remember it, but I made like emotional decisions off of it. Right. And it, 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 it's just, it's just, you sometimes just want to scream at the book. Well, and other thing I'll add real quick is that even if you didn't remember, because like, remember me, I didn't come into the picture until Sega was a non-entity already. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have the same, you know, like childhood reaction to all of this stuff. But even so, you find out things like, for example, uh, the the release date thing. That's something that affects everybody no matter what, right? Right. And here's another one we have we didn't touch on yet. And I think this is either like late 93 or 94, there's a thing, but the whole controversy over Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Another foundational foundation. This is actually, a, yeah, we should talk about this because oh, this yeah. is also really important. Yeah. So, so two things came yeah. out of the Mortal Kombat scenario. Mm-hmm. So basically, for the people who don't know, uh, Mortal Kombat Midway was making Mortal Kombat, which is going to go on to basically set. Uh, an infamous standard for video game violence. Video games to that point had never really seen a level of uh, gleeful gore as was seen in Mortal Kombat. Right, the original. Uh, In the original. And they were gearing up, they were doing the arcade release, and they were gearing up to put on on console. Now, Nintendo, as Tom Kalinske found out firsthand from the developers, uh, was going to censor the game so that there would be no actual blood and other, you know, super crazy things. Obviously, they're trying to protect their family-friendly reputation. Tom Kalinske, and they go into this, makes an agonized decision, but ultimately comes down on the side of Sega does what Nintendo and allows them, uh, Midway, to get the game out completely unvarnished on Sega Genesis. Mm-hmm. Business-wise, this proves to be 100% the right move. Because the Genesis uh, game was seen by gamers as the one to get. The Nintendo one was roundly criticized for their censorship. uh, And Sega went to the bank on it. But it also directly became the basis of the United States government stepping in. Uh, Again, going back to the idea that this is the Wild West era of video games. So to most mainstream people... There was still this scary thing, and we didn't really know what it was going to do, how it affects our kids, blah, 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 blah. So, of course, the the the, the, the scared moms campaign began. It wasn't <laughs> called that, but it might as well have been called yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scared moms campaign began. The government began a formal inquiry. Sega, Nintendo, and a bunch of other companies were hauled up to Capitol Hill, basically to defend themselves. Uh, And again, this is the very abridged version of events. But finally, after a lot of hand-wringing and back and forth, it is actually Tom Kalinske who leads the way uh, in establishing a rating system. They had a rating system at Sega, and he actually pushed, ultimately successfully, to get the ESRB created. So there's another Sega creation. Yep. Or Sega-led creation. Yeah. The ESRB, which, uh, for as much as it may be criticized today, is a self-regulating body for the video game industry, which helps keep the government 
from coming in and telling people what is and what is not acceptable, which I think we can all agree is for the best. Mm -hmm. So, oh, and another thing that came out of the Mortal Kombat thing is um, that that was the first uh, simultaneous multi-platform release. Yeah, it was. Uh, Nintendo and Sega release date simultaneously. I, obviously, the versions were slightly different, but that was the uh, that was the first of its kind as well. So again, this era, things as you said, things that we take for granted, but hugely important. Oh yeah, hugely. we take for granted that if you find out uh, Titanfall Two is coming out, which is an awesome game side note sidebar. Uh, you, you can reasonably assume that if you know what platforms it's available for on whatever the date is, you know, say November 1st, you can go and buy it on whichever platform you choose. But back in the day, until Mortal Kombat comes along, that's not necessarily the case. So, again, all these little things that add up, but I have a feeling I know what you're about to get into, which is the big kahuna stuff right. of this story. So, so let's so dive in. We're, we're, we're on the, the downfall of Sega, the, the looming... Uh, the looming storm, as it as it's kind of personified as in the later chapters of the book, and mm-hmm. I, the biggest one, the biggest nail in the coffin, right, is is the maybe kind of uh, but ultimately failed deals with Sony. So I think that this is probably going to, if if anything is going to uh, spark your interest as a video game lover. The 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 most interesting thing, not the most, but like really how the book ends is fascinating because what we all know is that in 1995 the Sony PlayStation is released, and the the cool part about about this is that. It takes a really long time to uh, develop a console, especially if it's your first one ever, right? This is not an – it's an oligarchy. It's, it's not an easy, um, you know, market to just enter, like, for fun, right? Like, you don't – you've got to have everything going in your favor. And the, the story of Sony is kind of semi-ongoing throughout the entire book. And it, it's great because – it's almost as if Sega and Nintendo are directly responsible for the PlayStation itself. Uh, Forget almost, they are. They, they are responsible, right? The, the story goes, and again, we're leaving out a ton of details here, but the story goes is that Sony uh, pretty much invented the uh, like widespread usability of the CD, Right. Yep. And it was generally accepted that uh, this was the direction that video games were going to go in. That you could uh, – that the, the cartridge was going to be out of date and you could store so much more data on a disc and it was more reliable and all this other stuff. So uh, there were uh, deals going on simultaneously with Sega and Sony and with Nintendo and Sony to try to get a deal worked out where there would be a joint either a joint console 
or that was what Sega was going for. Right, that's what Sega was going for, or a uh, peripheral, or an or an add-on to a console that which is what Nintendo which is what Nintendo for. wanted that would accept Sony branded CDs with games on them that run on. Uh, Sega or Nintendo branded consoles, right? Yep. Sounds confusing. It was, but essentially, <laughs> it's super interesting because the main Sony character here is a guy by the name of Olaf Olofsson. And if you've ever uh, done any research on expensive um, speakers, you've definitely that name definitely sounds familiar to you. And he was one of the biggest dudes at Sony at the time, uh, an Icelandic native. Uh, who was kind of responsible for trying to get these deals worked out. And both of them failed for uh, reasons we won't get into, but, you know, they both of, both of them failed. Well, we should get into the Sega one because the Sega one is very important. The Sega one, the Sega one is important because the Sega one is uh, not only, you know, at least, at least 50% responsible for the birth of the PlayStation – but this decision is also very much responsible for the downfall of, of Sega in general. So, yes. So, because yeah, Sega go for essentially, it. well, it was Tom Kalinske and Olaf Olafson who had been, throughout the book, as Snacks mentioned, uh, Olaf Olafson and, and Tom Kalinske are basically going back and forth trying to uh, come to some terms on this deal, saying we should do something, blah, 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 blah. Finally, they say, this is what we want to do. And Tom Kalinske takes it to Sega. Sega of Japan shoots it down. Why? They already have the Saturn in development at this time. And as uh, they get into in the book, it seems increasingly clear that Sega of Japan has a bit of a chip on its shoulder because Sega of America, you know, were the, the hotshot golden boys and girls. And, you know, came in and bodied the marketplace, essentially, while Sega Japan was still treading water with their strategies. And it it's, seems very clear that there was a, a level of resentment there. And regardless of whatever business sense it may have made, it seems that the we never, we never get a hard reason, nor did Tom Kalinske, for why the deal was rejected. But... Uh, it, it appears that um, the feeling of resentment among some of Sega Japan's upper management ultimately won the day. So the Sega-Sony deal died, which was a crushing blow personally to Tom Kalinske, and ultimately a crushing blow to Sega. Uh, right. Because as Tom Kalinske knew, the Saturn was not really going to be able to hang with what the rumors of... Uh, uh, what Nintendo 64, the Ultra 64 back then, were going to be able to do. Oh, and there was also the attempt, quick sidebar, remember there's also an attempt Tom Kalinske tried to get the deal with, uh, what was it, Digital Extremes or whatever it was? Uh, the, the the Hollywood, like, CG tech firm? Right, yeah. He was trying to get them on board to help do the hardware for the Saturn, to make it like super, super, super competitive. Right. And Sega was like, nah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of this is uh, Sega of Japan telling Sega of America they couldn't do things that you as the reader, you know, uh, from from like a like a no, like a, a an informed, you know, uh, reader perspective, 
knew was the correct decision the whole time. And it's so weird because, you know, uh, so so this decision, you know, it, Olaf Olafson kind of hints at the idea that Sony may enter the video game market at some point, right? And he makes this pretty much, he makes this, uh, this like, very quaint remark from, you know, 1992 to 1994. And then at this point, it's, it's widely known that since both deals fell through, Sony has actually been working on what, what was codenamed the PSX or something like that. And, uh, you know, it eventually becomes the PlayStation and I'm reading this, right. And the entire time, every single time that it's mentioned, Every single time that Olaf Olafson uh, says, yeah, you know, Sony's interested in video games or like any time, you know, one of the deals falls through, I'm reading the book and I'm, I'm looking, I'm just, I'm looking at my PlayStation 4 and I'm <laughs> like, and this is I'm like, this is exactly what I'm talking about when I say that this hit hits close to home. Like I am reading a first person account of a of of a conversation that resulted in this magnificent piece of hardware that is literally sitting in front of me and if the conversation had gone slightly differently it would not be sitting there and or it may have the or, name Sega and Sony on it or or could have been completely different it right. looked completely different had this conversation that I'm reading about from 25 years ago had gone slightly differently and it's it was like it was trippy. It was it was super trippy, and and so the PSX becomes a thing. We all know it. It's the PlayStation, and the big fears that Tom Kalinske has is we've been battling for five years now to gain the market share that we have, and it, and at this point, it's pretty much fifty fifty. Is there room for a third? There might not be. And if there's not, who is the one that is asked out? It could be Sega. Well, Tom Kulinski believed it basically would be Sega because right. he felt that, especially since the deals he tried to cut were fell through, uh, he felt that what was being cooked up in Japan, between the fact that it was technologically not to snuff and the fact that he was increasingly feeling the heat of the resentment on his neck and be having his hands tied as far as what he could do to advance the company's goals. He was like, there's not going to be a future uh, for us in the gaming market. Right. So towards the end of the, towards the end of the, um, and this is, this is also super cool, right? The, uh, towards the end of the book, right? Um, and I think this is a good, a good part to like start wrapping it up was that, uh, for for this entire time, trade shows have always been a thing, right? And mm-hmm. video games have always been, um, all, not always, but like, you know, early on or whatever, uh, have always been like at least somewhat of a presence at electronics game shows. Yeah. But they got so big and the console wars became so heated and the market share just grew so exponentially between 1990 and 1995 that uh, it, it gave rise to the E3, right? Well, let's tell it just a slightly differently. So for one thing, we should mention that I mean, a lot of this book occurs at the Consumer Electronics Show, which I believe is still going on yeah. every year in Las Vegas. Yeah. So what they would get is a tent at the back of the show. 
they're getting for the most part they just get some tent with, with floor space out there it's kind of like oh these like side benches or whatever yeah uh and what happened was as you said the industry got bigger and bigger but i think at least from the way it's written seems to be the bigger driver is that tom kalinsky and some other people got pissed with being you know the side chicks at the event and they said you know what we have enough clout now that we can do our own thing and we should be able to get these retailers to show up. Again, for the younger folks out there, this is the era where retail was everything. There was no digital distribution. There yep. was none of that stuff. Yep. You had, And not to mention, there was barely even the enthusiast gaming press mm-hmm. and no internet, really, to speak of. Yeah. So if you were not in retail, you were asked out. Uh, so that's why trade shows were important. And another creation of... Tom Skolinski and the folks he worked with was E3. They started E3 uh, and created, of course, the Entertainment Software Association that runs it. And, of course, we're now going to get into what occurred at the very first E3 in 1995. Right. So at this point, we know PlayStation is a thing. Um, Sony is actually present at the first E3. Uh, this is super cool. Everybody kind of has their new console, the, you know, the new generation. I think it's what, like, uh, the, the fifth generation of console gaming is is coming out. It's uh, it's the N64, and it's the Sega Saturn, and it's the PlayStation. And one of the most famous events in marketing, electronics, and certainly video game history is... The, uh, the, 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 like, very, uh, is the very ostentatious move by Sony to really kind of, uh, you know, not just enter the market, but to, like, kick the damn door down. And, and what they did was, uh, you can find it on YouTube. I strongly suggest you watch it. I think, um, I think I actually linked to it on my, on my latest piece on the website to the clip, but uh, you know, Sega goes up and they, they talk about the Sega Saturn and, and they, they say it's got this and it's got that and it's got CDs and, you know, it, it's 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 the next generation of gaming. Um, be excited. And uh, they, they list the price as $399 and this is kind of run of the mill and everybody's sort of expecting this kind of type of thing and great. And then Sony comes up and uh, Olaf Olafsson is, is the keynote speaker and he, he comes out and he says a lot of things about the PlayStation and all the things they've been working on and that's been really cool. And then he brings up his guest. Who is Steve Race. Steve Race. Bum, bum, bum. Right. So Steve Race comes up and simply goes up to the microphone and states the price of the PlayStation. He comes up to the microphone and simply says two ninety nine. And walks away from the microphone. And at the time, you can watch the YouTube clip, and there's kind of a delayed reaction from the crowd. And it's... I don't know if they knew what he was referencing at first. And then it sank in, and I think after a couple of seconds, when they all realized that he was just saying, like, our thing is going to be better and cheaper, fuck Sega, (laughs) Yeah, was... it, it it kind of it kind of grew in infamy the 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 phrase the whole theatrics of the whole thing because the whole time you could tell Olaf Olafson was kind of just droning on killing time uh, to set this whole thing up and you know he could have made a big show out of the the shortest speech ever at E three uh, to this day but uh, but he didn't and, and that that kind of the the theatrics the the mic drop the 
the the again to this day shortest speech at E3 is now the most infamous <laughs> one. And again, I'm reading this and I'm I'm looking at my PlayStation Four and I'm like, God damn! Like this to every at this point there was there was a point in the book where where the PlayStation became a known entity and from yep. that point onward, I I I witnessed I wit every sentence that contained the word Sony PSX disc PlayStation every sentence was a a like a formative chapter of my gaming life like though I saw the whole like it was like I was reading my childhood be constructed before it had actually happened like crazy isn't it I got the PlayStation Launch. I, you, I didn't know that. I got the original play. Oh, I've said it before on this podcast. I have got. I got. I got the PlayStation uh, Christmas, but of the launch year. So oh, that's right. Yes, you said you got it at Christmas that year, but I never put the two together. Oh, yeah, I got it Christmas of that year. It it was a thing that I had only heard of. I was five or six, and <laughs> I actually got Gex for it. Cause I, yeah. cause I had asked for it cause I had played it at Costco, even though I didn't, I don't, I didn't even know if I liked it or not. It was so, it was so goddamn long ago, but, right. but I, I got it and I'm, I'm reading all this stuff and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is, this is, this is, uh, you know, this, this moment, like that moment of me, even though I had played video games before that I had the Sega Pico, which I joked about on this podcast. And, you know, I had, I had close cousins and friends that had had the Sega Genesis and I had played Sonic before then and everything. But like the first real time I felt like I was like, that I had this thing that was important that like, I had this thing that I, that I loved and was like, a, a big deal to me, even though I was too young to like really comprehend it was the PlayStation. And I'm reading this whole thing and I'm like, this is, this man is crafting my, uh, like a big part of who I am today. Yep. And it was, right so, it, was it was so, it wasn't emotional, but it was, it was, it was a trip. It, it really was a trip. And, and that was, that was like, really kind of generally considered the nail in the coffin for Sega and, and, and at least for Tom Kalinske's uh, tenure at Sega. Well, don't forget, you also left out, you left out one major detail. Okay. Which is that the other reason that this, this first E3 was such a infamous E3, yes, there was a Steve Race announcement to completely undercut Sega, but the other reason that this is so damaging is that uh, during Tom Kalinske's speech talking about Sega Saturn, he also announced that the console is available right now. Right. There yes. will be no carefully considered rollout or pre-marketing campaign. The console is on store shelves as of as of the time I'm giving this speech. And it's a hundred dollars less than whatever that Sega thing is going to be. Well, no, place. I'm talking about the Sega Saturn was a uh, hundred dollars more than whatever the PlayStation was. Right. The Saturn was on shelves at the time. Why did this happen? Because, yet again, right. fallout between Sega of Japan and Sega of America. Uh, they go into detail of this particular conversation in the book, so read the book. But essentially, uh, finally, Nakayama, the, the head of Sega of Japan, who had mostly been trying to protect Tom Kalinske from uh, his pissed-off colleagues, 
uh, he finally also said, we disagree here, and I'm the boss, and you're going to do what I say. And so instead of releasing the Saturn in September, uh, which would have been a couple months after the E3, as Sega of America was planning, uh, Nakayama told them, no, move it up, we're going to beat PlayStation to launch. And in doing so, they this is a huge... Bu- it might not come through necessarily in footage of the speech, but it was a complete bombshell nuke to Sega's entire uh, console business because it pissed off all the retailers, it confused consumers, it was a total and complete disaster. Uh, so after this occurred, Tom Kalinske, uh sometime later left Sega. Uh, and thus was the beginning of the end for them. Right. The, be- the beginning of the end uh, hard, you know, the hard beginning of the end is E3 1995. Yeah. It's also the hard beginning of the end for Nintendo. Uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. You know, what we're going to do now is is kind of like a, uh, we're going to do a, a suite, essentially, a, a Sega suite. Uh, like like Frog said at the beginning of the episode, we, we really haven't given uh, Sega enough of the lip service that we think it deserves. We read this book and we realized Sega is responsible for so much and really, you know, was around longer than we give it credit for and 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 really is, is just so much more for, uh, formational – is formational a word? To the video game world than, than is given credit in today's Even day. Even if it isn't, you can say foundational. Foundational. Yeah. It's more foundational to – yeah. So – what we're going to do is kind of a Sega suite. We're we're going to um, for the for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the month or for the next couple of weeks at least. We're we're going to talk about something that Sega did. Sega's responsible for, and this was the kickoff. You know, we're gonna we're gonna hash out what the rest of the month is gonna look like later. But uh, but we're we're starting our Sega suite, and it's uh it it's November. It's it's um. It's the 15th, no, I'm sorry, 25th uh, anniversary of the first Sonic uh, this November, I believe. And, um, you know, we're, we read this book, we both finished it very recently, and we decided, all right, we're going we're gonna to do this thing. So we're doing this, this is the first one, uh, Console Wars by uh, Blake Harris, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, great book. They're actually making it into a movie at some point. And a documentary. The and, documentary was already in in the works. Okay. Uh, but they yeah, they also got the rights also acquired for a full feature movie. Yeah. So both of these should be amazing. They should be. So do that. Um, that's all the time that we have for today. But stick with us next week. More Sega stuff. Uh, trust me, there's a lot of interesting things to cover about Sega. And uh, again, you can always check out our home on the web. Frogsnacks.net. You can check out our uh, written pieces there. We both have uh, we both have new pieces up uh, that went up earlier this week. You can check them out. Uh, all of our podcasts are there. Uh, we're on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate and review our our podcast. Uh, we have a Twitter at Frogsnacks and a Instagram at Frogsnacks Podcast. Lots of cool stuff to check out on all of those aforementioned places. And we will see you guys next week. Take care. Peace.